Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the fight over Line 5 continues. The dispute we acknowledge is between Enbridge and Michigan, but what we're saying is we have a national interest here, and we, we have information that we believe is relevant to the dispute. That's formally what we're saying to the court. In, in fairly plain language, what we're saying is, look, there is a treaty uh, between Canada and the U.S., the Pipeline Transit Treaty of 1977. It applies to Line 5. The future of the AstraZeneca vaccine in Canada is in question. The risk of these blood clotting events, while rare, went from about 1 in 100,000 to about 1 in 60,000. So it's fair to say that they're still rare, but that is a change, and that's, that's an important change. The other important point, too, that I think was kind of lost in the mix was supply issues. And roughly 88,000 international air travelers were exempted from staying in Canada's quarantine hotels, but the government won't say why. When the final reckoning is done, there will be a lot to learn about how Canada has treated the borders. It does not seem to appreciate until very late in the day that travel is the source of community transmission. It's Thursday, May 13th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Mark. Let's start with where we stand on the Line 5 pipeline. The standoff continues, of course. This is being battled out in court. Enbridge is defying the governor of Michigan. Uh, but if the pipeline is closed, it could have a huge impact on fuel capacity in Canada. So what what's the latest on this? And what does it say about the relationship between different jurisdictions in the United States and in Canada and Canada-U.S. relations in general? Well, this one is a serious threat to, to Canada's well-being if what Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is trying to do actually happens. Uh, she wants to close down this vital Line 5 pipeline, which supplies something like 66% of Quebec's oil and 50% of Ontario's, uh, the source of a lot of Pearson International's fuel for, for jet fuel. The uh, it's, There are thousands of jobs in Sarnia, for example, in the refining industry, which rely on oil coming through this pipeline. Uh, the, the governor claims that it is unsafe and is likely to split and pollute the Great Lakes, even though it's been in operation for 67 years without a leak. Um, the matter is before the courts. The, the state is applying for a court order to, to stop the oil flowing. The, uh, the proponent is Enbridge, which is a Canadian company, and the oil is coming from Canada. So this is a pretty uh, uh, acute problem for the, for the government of Canada. It's been... Um, trying to lean on Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, to to intervene. He is not minded to intervene, given particularly given uh, Governor Whitmer is a fellow Democrat, and I think he was even considering her as a potential vice president at one point. So it's a bit of a mess. Um, it does suggest an escalation of uh, the environmentalist tactics, and that you're now not just trying to close down pipelines that are about to be built, you're trying to close down pipelines that have already been built and have been supplying oil for decades. Enbridge says that it uh, it will create an underground tunnel and uh, to replace the pipeline, um, you know, take uh, measures to make it even more safe. But uh, but the the state is not minded to to engage in a compromise which was agreed by Governor Whitmer's. Uh, predecessor. I think that one of the key factors here, though, is that uh, if the pipeline was closed off, it would also affect Michigan.
Michiganders, which is a, a new word I hadn't uh, appreciated. <laughs> the residents of Michigan are called Michiganders. Yeah. But, you know, people in Michigan and, and Ohio and in Pennsylvania would also be affected. So businesses uh, south of the border are also complaining that this this uh, pipeline should remain open, which would seem to me to be a, a, a crucial intervention in the, in the court case. Um, the other factor is that, of course, the, the oil won't stop flowing. It might not flow through the pipeline, but it will come via alternative routes. And one of the alternative routes is barges on the Great Lakes, which I think by any measure is likely to be uh, a greater risk of pollution than the pipeline. So it's uh, it remains to be seen how this all plays out, but, uh, but clearly uh, it's not a good development in Canada-US relations. And uh, Joe Biden's absence from, uh, from helping Canada cannot help but be noted north of the border. Yeah. All right, let's turn to vaccines in Canada. And of course, there's uh, been a lot said and written about the AstraZeneca vaccine over the last few days. Uh, it's not going to be administered as a first dose in Ontario anymore. Uh, and that has raised questions about the safety of the vaccine, uh, the, the state of the people who have already received it, uh, what they're going to get as a second shot, how this affects the overall vaccination program across the country. Um, but I gather that that from the federal government's perspective, there are enough enough other vaccine doses coming into the country that we should still be able to, to be on time with the timetable the government's laid out for everyone to be receiving their first and second dose. Is that how you read it? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it's not... A lot of the provinces are now saying they're going to hold off on AstraZeneca, but it's not a case of uh, AstraZeneca or nothing. The reason they're able to say that is because um, there looks like there's a, a steady flow of mRNA vaccines coming into the country, the, the, the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. I think if that were not the case, there would be uh, revolt among people like yourself and me who have both been vaccinated first shot with AstraZeneca and we're waiting to get a second shot of AstraZeneca. Um, it now looks like we may be able to mix and match with, with other vaccines to get our second dose. Um, the trials are still being done on that. It looks like there's a British trial has come out which says you can do that although the, the reaction may be stronger on the on the second dose so it's uh, it's a confusing situation for everybody I think that the uh, you know in some ways it's understandable the way the the, uh, the public health advice is coming out but you know we've now got um, new research which shows that the blood clot issue is a bigger issue than we thought it was Although I have to say that you look at the UK where, where the vast majority of people were vaccinated with AstraZeneca and the risk, uh, it turns out, is somewhere like one in 117,000, uh, much higher than the, the federal government is telling us it is in Canada, where there's, there's some suggestions it's as low as one in 60,000. So it's a bit of a, uh, a muddle, and I think the, uh, the communications on this has been pretty poor. Yeah. If you remember, the, the advisory council came out and suggested there was a preferred vaccine. Um, you know, then people are wondering, well, are we going to get take the AstraZeneca that I'm being offered? Now the provinces are coming out and saying they're not, not even going to offer that vaccine. Uh, yeah, a real confusing situation for people, uh, slightly worrying for people who've already had AstraZeneca. But I think 
the saving grace is that there does appear to be enough vaccine that if we can mix and match, that everybody will be given their their uh, first and second doses certainly before the end of September. Yeah, but as you point out, uh, when when there was an agency that said, uh, you know, if you can avoid the AstraZeneca vaccine, do so. A bunch of people sort of denounced that statement, but now governments are actually lining up with that. So there's inconsistencies. Yeah. And, and I think that undermines confidence in all of the messaging around vaccines as we try to move as quickly as possible to achieve uh, a level of immunity in the country. Well, that's right. I mean, and you know, we don't achieve a level of immunity in the country if 25% of the population says we're not getting vaccinated. Yeah. You know, given the, <coughs> you know, you've got so many kids that, are, that may or may not be vaccinated, and then you've got the refuse nicks. And if that number is high enough, you don't get to herd immunity. So any measure that undermines confidence in vaccines is clearly counterproductive. All right, let's turn to a story uh, by one of your colleagues in the National Post about the fact that there were 88,000 international air travelers who didn't have to stay in the quarantine hotels when they arrived in the country, but the government so far has not explained why. What's going on there? Yeah, this is my colleague Adrian Humphreys who asked for data from the Public Health Agency about travelers who who did not stay in expensive government-appointed hotels. It turns out there were 88,000, and nearly 30% of people coming into the country who don't because they're exempt for one reason or another. You know, they may be flight crew or whatever. The, the, the public health agency does not break down who those people are. Slightly worrying, but not totally surprising given the uh, the history of our um, our border security. I mean, I think there's no doubt that, that borders... Uh, lax borders of, and travel have contributed to the, the spread of COVID in this country. And the government <coughs> has been slow off the mark in this and, is, and likes to downplay the idea that um, international travel is responsible for COVID cases getting into Canada. You know, Bill Blair tweeting out that prohibited non-essential travel to... Uh, that the government has prohibited non-essential travel to Canada for over a year. Well, not so much the case, in part because the World Health Organization was advising that the disease knows no borders and people should try and keep their borders open. That was the early advice, ignored by countries like Taiwan, New Zealand and Australia, but not ignored by Canada. And our our, uh, border security measures were pretty lax, at least until January when we started requiring a test before people got on planes, and then in February when we started out the quarantine hotel uh, experiment, but you know Australia have been doing that for a year, and they are hard and fast. You've got to go into the, one of these hotels if you land in the country. Uh, Canada, not so much. Now we know a third of the people don't go, go through these hotels. Some people just blatantly refuse to go into them and take a fine instead. So I think that uh, when the when the final reckoning is done, there will be a lot to learn about how Canada has treated the borders. It does not seem to appreciate, or hasn't seemed to appreciate until very late in the day, that um, that travel is the source of community transmission. You know, you, you, may, you may only have 2% of cases that are directly travel-related, but they see huge numbers of other cases. And that's how they, they, uh, all these variants got into the country in the first place. Now, you know, that's the case on one side. And on the other side, if you cut down... Uh, travel at the borders or you close the borders completely, 
then you, there's a price to be paid. You know, we have 110,000 truckers coming in every week. Passenger flights carry cargo in their holds. If you sealed the country, you would disrupt supply chains and cause hardship. So, you know, there are quid, there's a, a quid pro quo to that. Sure. And I think when we're all done, we're going to have to look at how we handle this and decide how we're going to handle it in the future, because there probably will be a future. All right. Great stuff, John. Thanks for your insights on all these topics today. Have a great day. Thanks so much. That's John Iveson of the National Post. I believe we should be taking the vaccine. And again, uh, I defer, though, to the public health guidance in terms of what is the best course of action. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues, public health leaders should trust us with the whole picture. The Star writes, everyone wants clarity, but the AstraZeneca switch shows that clarity at the expense of nuance can leave thousands of people with a feeling of being had. Public health authorities and politicians could start by ceasing to talk to us as if we were children who need to be reassured that we've been good boys and girls by getting jabbed with AstraZeneca. Those of us who got AstraZeneca need answers, not a pat on the head. At National News Watch, Don Lenahan and Andrew Balfour ask if a waiver on patent rights will speed up global vaccination. They write, Standing up to Big Pharma is good politics, and the idea of a waiver is certainly appealing. But there's more to this than corporate profits or votes. Serious concerns are being raised about the viability of the waiver. Manufacturing these vaccines takes highly specialized skills and materials, which in turn requires access to highly specialized supply chains. Even supporters acknowledge that reproducing the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines will take time, money, and help. In the Globe and Mail, Lawrence Martin argues, with the Line 5 shutdown order, the U.S. has spurned Canada's energy needs again. Martin writes, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is treating the good neighbor as badly as Donald Trump did. If the shutdown occurs, thousands of jobs would be threatened and gas prices would jump. But with the Democrats, the Liberals' ideological soulmates, Powell's diplomacy hasn't worked. Calmer heads should prevail on this file. That's one of the changes Joe Biden was supposed to bring to bilateral relations post-Trump. Gretchen Whitmer never got the message. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. A number of parliamentary committees are studying the impact of the pandemic on different sectors of Canadian society. Today, one committee hears from witnesses on the impact on Canadian seniors. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark, this afternoon, the House of Commons Committee on Human Resources, Skills and Social Development will hear from a number of witnesses. First up is a major group representing Canadian seniors, CanAge, and its president, Laura Tamblin-Waits. MPs will also hear from the National Institute on Aging, and that's a think tank associated with Ryerson University, which has done much research on the issue. They'll also hear from leaders of the Canadian Support Workers Association, representing the hundreds of thousands of specialized workers who help Canadian seniors. Lastly, there'll be testimony from a network connected to technologies which help our more aged Canadians. Thanks, Martin. Also today, an interview with the Prime Minister will air live on CP24. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will virtually attend question period. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole will hold a news conference in Ottawa. There will also be a news conference in Ottawa with Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet. Small Business Minister Mary Ng will take part in a virtual conversation on Canada-Ireland trade relations. 
Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna and Labour Minister Philomena Tassi will attend an infrastructure event in Hamilton, Ontario. And Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino will announce measures of support to in-Canada families of victims of Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 and Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, May 13th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.